scripture for today is in Luke 4, which can be found on page 1565 of the Pew Bible, if you would like to follow along. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Thanks, Sharon. Hi, High Point Church. How are you? My, my name, for those of you who don't know me, is Lloyd Biddle. I am one of the associate pastors here at High Point Church. And uh, on days like this, when the, some churches have closed, we get a chance to see who the real Christians are. Amen. Right? <laughs> The, the ones who can, who can brave the Madison winters that are in the spring. Madison winters in the spring, right? The, and come to church. And so we're delighted to see you all this week. We're continuing in the series uh, in Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 4 uh, this morning. Um, Jesus confronts self-righteousness. One of my favorite uh, characters in the whole Bible is the deacon Stephen. Uh, some of you may remember in the book of Acts, the church was growing fast, and some of the widows were being ignored in the daily distribution to the poor. And so the solution was to raise up deacons who would serve so that the apostles could continue to preach and to pray. And so they raise up uh, seven, and one of them is this man, Stephen. I like him so much because it says of Stephen, he was full of faith and, uh, and the Holy Spirit. And though the, the primary minister, ministry for these deacons was to serve the saints, um, he had a gift to, to, to preach. And the scripture says that he's doing signs and miracles all throughout Jerusalem. 
He gains the attention of the Pharisees. He's preaching salvation in Jesus' name. And you know what that'll do to uh, the Pharisees, right? The leaders who put Christ to death. They're like, we got to stop this. And some people rise up and they say lies. They say, uh, Stephen is always speaking against Moses in this temple. And so they bring Stephen before the Sanhedrin, and he has to give an account of himself, and he, he does. And he begins preaching uh, the message, the story of Jesus Christ, all the way from Abraham, all the way through Moses. And I think it's a really long sermon. We have parts of it recorded in, in Acts chapter 7. But if you look at the detail that he covers, I'll bet you that was about an hour sermon. If you think some of Nick's sermons that long, I bet you that sermon was kind of long. And so he was preaching... And he gets to this place, everything is going well, until he gets to the point where he confronts the people about their sin. Here's what he says. He talks about Moses. He says, Moses is a great prophet. This is Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from among your people. That particular quote is from Deuteronomy 18.15, and it leaves off this little section, and it says there, if you look it up in Deuteronomy 18.15, and him you must listen to. He said, you're not listening to me. But when the next one comes, when the anointed Messiah comes, him you must listen to. Well, he's nice. He doesn't say it here, right? He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods. You remember um, Moses had to go up onto Mount Sinai. He was called up to, to, uh, to, to, to get, receive the law from God. And Joshua could only come so far. And he was up there 40 days. And while he was up, the people were like, man, who is this Moses? And here's what they do. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. Can you imagine this? They had served the living God and seen him um, put 10 different plagues on the Egyptians. Kill the Egyptians' firstborn child. Went out to the sea, the Red Sea. Watched the Red Sea go up on a heap. Um, be, be filled with, with manna and meat in the desert. And they want to go back to Egypt and they want to worship the work of their hands. This is the depravity that's being called out. So everything is going good in Stephen's sermon until he starts talking about sin. And then he goes one deep, deeper. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are uncircumcised, i.e., your hearts aren't trained to be able to hear and heed the gospel, even after the covenants, even after the fathers, even after being cast into, um, uh, been cast away into Babylon, even after exile and restoration and more prophets and salvation and healing and forgiveness. After all of this, your hearts are not still trained to obey, to hear and to obey the word of God. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. 
uh, John the Baptist. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You see the charge? All the prophets in the past, those like John the Baptist, and now the Messiah has come, and you even killed the Messiah. You can tell this is not going to go well. And they get furious, and they stop up their ears, and they stone him to death. And there's this amazing scene that happens where we see Stephen say what Jesus said essentially. While he's being stoned, he prays for his people. He says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive these folks. He recognizes they don't know what they're doing. Here they are stoning yet another of God's prophets. But here's the, here's the thing. There comes, in Jesus' ministry, in his mission, it's his mission to confront us with our self-righteousness. This has always been the case uh, from, the, from the time he deals with Adam all the way through the recorded history in the New Testament. God deals with sinners. His message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we do with that message depends on what our relationship will be like with God. So today's morning's message, this is the main proposition. Jesus' mission requires him to confront your self-righteousness. It requires him to confront your self-righteousness. And the supporting points work like this. The presence of the Holy Spirit demonstrates how important the confrontation is. Secondly, seeing your own neediness is the goal of the confrontation. God wants us to understand how we are nothing without him, but all he had designed with him. He wants us to see our neediness. And that's why he confronts us with what we're really like. And thirdly, your response to the confrontation determines your relationship to Jesus. First point, the presence of the Holy Spirit demonstrates the importance of that confrontation. Remember now what the Holy Spirit has been doing. He's very prominent in Luke's gospel. In chapter 1, he is the one that um, comes on Mary, and through the Holy Spirit, she conceives. That's, the, that's one of the main ministries. That's the Holy Spirit that, that, that allows Mary to, be, to conceive Jesus Christ, right? That's why God is, is Jesus' father. And the next time we see him, he's in chapter 3. Um, while all of the people, or many of the people, are coming to John the Baptist to be baptized, Jesus comes himself and gets baptized. And the scripture says, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And so the Spirit empowers Jesus. We, are to, we see the Trinity there. The Father sends the Spirit upon Jesus. And then we get to chapter 4, and the Scripture tells us at the beginning of chapter 4 that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus into the desert. And what comes after in order to complete him? So we have a Savior that was in all points tempted like us, but unlike us, he's without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He's at all points tempted like us, but unlike us, he was able to pass the, the test. And so he is the perfect Adam, we heard, right, the last time. He is the perfect Israel, Jesus Christ, as well as the perfect Savior, God. So the Holy Spirit is, is active in this ministry. And he, he's active for a couple of reasons. Jesus returned to Galilee, Luke 14, 15. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Everything was going wonderful at first. Jesus was doing miracles and preaching uh, healing and, and, and life in himself, and everything was going great, right? In Luke 4.18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Christians, every Christian, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit gives every Christian spiritual gifts. And it's out of those spiritual gifts that you serve God. Even Jesus required the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be able to preach. His preaching was winsome. His preaching was bold. But his preaching was also steadfast. If you read the Gospels, he's always running into opposition. Not just from the Pharisees, sometimes even from within. In fact, we know that the, the record is that one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, actually even betrayed him. And so he needed the power of the Holy Spirit in order to change men's hearts. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit for boldness, and he needed the power of the Holy Spirit to stand fast when the whole world was against him. And so what I'm saying to you is that you need the Holy Spirit. I was uh, called to, to preach the gospel in my late 30s. I felt, like, uh, I felt like God was clearly communicating with me that I was to preach the gospel. And I knew enough to know that I didn't have no skills at all. In the, I was not deceived. I was like, I got no skills. I barely like coming to church. Jesus, you must be calling somebody else. I'll be, I'm not the guy. And so for a year, though, I had this firm conviction that I was supposed to become a preacher, I didn't do anything. And God wasn't having anything to do with it. I barely could sleep for a year. Can you imagine? I barely could sleep for a year. And uh, then God said, Lloyd, you need to study anointing in the Scripture. So for 40 days, I studied the Holy Spirit's work. And I started studying the Holy Spirit with Saul, the King Saul, and David, and Moses. And what I began to see is that none of the, all these guys were horrible. In fact, David was such a nobody when, when the prophet comes to, to, to his father and asks, you know, wants to anoint his son, his father doesn't even think enough of David to even mention his name. He says, no, you, you certainly don't want him. He was a nobody with no power, no discern, nothing attractive about him that anybody would pay attention to. And see that the power in our ability to serve God comes from God. It's not in me. When I realized that God was going to have to do something in me, or maybe had already done something in me, then I was ready to go forward. The question is, what have you been anointed to do? Now, I know many of you do all kinds of phenomenal work. You work in IS and, and in medicine, and you teach, and you do all kinds of work. I'm not so much talking about what you do for a living, I'm talking about what God has equipped you for in his family. And there is a little bit of a difference. There's a bit of a difference from what you do for a vocation and what you do for the kingdom. But God has equipped you. He has anointed you in order for you to succeed in doing his work. And Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit 
to confront hard-headed people like you and me and not be afraid even when they, they sought to put him to death. The power of the Holy Spirit, we have resources in order to do the work of God. We have God's own power working in us. That's why we are without an excuse. God calls you to the missions field, confirm it, and go. You've got the power. I know you may not seem like you have the resources. I know you feel like you don't have the training. But if God has called you, he has empowered you, he will bring resources around you through his spirit. You have the mind of Christ. We've been studying this in substance. You have an ability to understand the scripture that you didn't have before. One of the things that astounded me when I became a Christian in my early 20s is I used to read the scripture and I'd be like, I, didn't, I don't know what I just read. No, I, no clue. And I remember that something happened when I repented of my sins. And I could read the Bible and I could understand it. God had done a work in me. And what I'm trying to tell you is that you've got the mind of Christ. You, if you have come to Jesus in faith, he has enabled you, unlike non-Christians, to understand the word of God as well as to obey the word of God. He's given you the power and the desire to obey the word of God. It's an awesome thing, an awesome change that has come over us. We have the mind of Christ. And lastly, we have fellowship with Christ. I like the way Romans 8 talks about it. It talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God. Famine, sword, death, life, nothing is able to separate us from the fellowship that we have in God through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has a confrontation with us, and the Holy Spirit equips him for that confrontation. It gives him winsomeness. That's why many of us were persuaded intellectually that Jesus was Lord. We were persuaded through the power of the Holy Spirit. This happened to me from reading the Word of God. Others of us came to faith in different ways. The Holy Spirit persuaded me that the Word of God is true. It gives us boldness in our ministry, whatever that ministry is. And it gives us power when we encounter opposition. And if you are serious about doing Jesus' work, you will, like Jesus, like Stephen, like Peter, you could just name all the names, like Moses, you're going to have um, resistance within and without. Inside the church and outside in the world, you're going to have some resistance. But Jesus has equipped you. The presence of the Holy Spirit demonstrates the importance of that confrontation. Second, seeing your own neediness is the goal of the confrontation. This is really important. Why does Jesus confront us with our sins? He wants us to recognize that we need him. He wants us to recognize that everything you do worthwhile, everything that will happen that will last eternally is done through him. David the king put it this way in Psalm 40, 16, and 17. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. We're studying joy now. Uh, one of the ways that we can remain joyful despite our circumstances is to always be seeking God, whether things are going well or not so well. 
whether you're loved at work or hated, whether your marriage is, is going great or falling apart, one of the ways you can experience joy is to be seeking God. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great, but as for me, now this is David, this is the one who killed uh, the, the giant, right? This is the one who um, killed bears with his bare hand. This is the one who becomes king, the anointed king, the best king in all of Israel save Jesus Christ, right? He says, but as for me, I am poor and needy. This is the key to his success, that even though he was anointed king, he always recognized that his power in everything good in him came from his God. His heart was always directed toward God. In his mind, it didn't matter that he was the king of Israel, the most prominent ruler in the whole world. He was humble before his God. How about us? How well are you doing when God promotes you in your sphere of influence? Do you have that same sense of humility? Do you have that same sense of thankfulness? When God, when you're doing well, when you're promoted, when your children are thriving, do you have that same sense that all glory due to God in the midst of your success as you have in your failure? As for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. So Jesus goes into Nazareth as was his custom. Now this is Jesus. He is the word. He has all power, right? And every week on Saturday, this is the Jewish custom, right? He's, he's in fellowship. How about us? If the all-knowing, all-powerful one was careful to have fellowship with, the, with the God's people, how much more should we? It was his custom to be in the synagogue on a Saturday. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover your sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the funny thing about Jesus is this. It is true that he healed people, cast out demons, but he could only change the lives of those people humble enough to recognize their weakness and his power. He could heal, he could, he could move mountains, right? But he can only change your life and my life when we recognize our humility and our sin. Here's what he says to the Pharisees. They are mind-boggled. Jesus is starting his ministry, his healing. He's taking, he's um, feeding. He's casting out demons. Folks are just pouring in to come to him. And the Pharisees see that he's receiving the tax collectors the tax collectors uh, t uh, take in revenues on behalf of the Romans, and they took more than what they should have. The people hated them, right? They were, they were um, enemies of the people. They were traitors in the eyes of the Jews. Why do you eat and drink with these scum, with this scum, with these tax collectors and sinners? Jesus had called Levi, one of the tax collectors, to come and follow him. Why are you calling to be your disciple, one of these lowlifes is what they're saying to him. Jesus answered them, 
It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You need to see this. What they're saying is, listen, we are the ones that are esteemed in all of Israel. We are the ones who have received the mantle from Moses. If you want to be prominent, if you, want, you think you're doing something with your miracles and your message, if you really want to do well, come and associate yourself with us and get away from these sinners. Get away from these prostitutes. Get away from these tax collectors. And Jesus said, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. Metaphor for, for those who are spiritually poor, who, who know they are not righteous. I like the story he tells a little later in one of the Gospels. He says, two men came to the prayer. One was a Pharisee. He stood up and said, Lord, I thank you. I, 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 I tithe everything. I'm always, I fast all the time. And I'm certainly like this, not like this scum sinner right here. And then they, the prayer of the sinner and he says, he, he doesn't even lift his head up. His head is down. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, it's the second that went away justified. So it is with us. The main message when Jesus started and moved forward, when John the Baptist started and went forward was this. Repent for the kingdom of God is, has come near. I caught a song that really captures what I want to leave you with. Jesus confronts us with our sin because he wants us to be whole. Jesus confronts us with our sin because he wants us to become godly. Jesus confronts us with our sin so that we can become born again. Jesus confronts us with our sins so that we can grow in Christ. Even after we start on our pilgrimage with Jesus, Jesus gently confronts us with sin so that we can become more and more like him. This song has come to the table. It's, called, it's written by the Siwad prophets. It really gets to the heart of this because when I talk about people recognizing their poverty, I'm not so much talking about your materialness. When I talk about your blindness, I'm not talking about whether you have good sight or not. Just come to the table. Come join the sinners. You have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior now. Sit down and be set free. I like to sit down. He's done the atoning work. Yes, once you have been saved, we, we work for him in gratitude, but not to get, to, to get his acceptance. Our justification has been accomplished by him. Sit down. Sit down and be set free. Come to the table. Just come to the table. To the thief and to the doubter. To the hero and to the coward. To the prisoner and to the soldier. To the young and to the older. All who hunger. All who thirst. All the last, all the first. All the paupers and all the princes. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You can be wealthy and you can be without anything in Jesus' eyes. If you're wealthy or poor, you can come to Jesus, you're on equal footing with him. To the paupers, to the princes, all who fell, you've been forgiven. All who dream, all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all the chained and all the free, all who follow and all who lead, anyone who's been let down, all the lost, you've been found, all who've been labeled right or wrong, everyone who hears this song, just come. 
And so what God is saying to everyone, whatever your station in life, whatever your cultural background, right, whether you have privileged background or whether you've struggled, whether your life is going as you had kind of planned or whether or not, Jesus says to you, just come. And he's looking for those of us who are poor enough, who are humble enough to know that we have need. That's all that's required to come to Jesus, is to recognize your spiritual poverty, your spiritual blindness, to recognize that as we live in these times, under sin and the flesh and the devil, that, that, that there is oppression because of sin and the one who champions it. But in Jesus, there's freedom. Are you blind? Are you poor? Last month, I had to deal with the fact that I was struggling with depression. Now, when I worked for American Family for 20 years, always in sales, there would be years when business was really tough, and I'd have weeks when I just couldn't pull myself out of the, those organs. The pressure was so great, I barely felt like I could make it another week. But in those down periods, it would be a week or something. It wouldn't last long. About Christmas time, I knew I was down. I had buried my sister. I did a bunch of funerals, and I was running out of gas spiritually. I was in trouble, and I knew it. I felt like uh, I was planning to go on vacation with my wife in Atlanta. I felt after a week or so, I would be fine when I came back. I came back. I was scheduled to preach in a week, and I knew I couldn't preach the sermon. So Mike helped me out. And I was just kind of struggling through up until early March. One Sunday, I was supposed to come up and do some, I think I was supposed to lead communion, and I literally could not get out of bed. And by Wednesday, I had went to the doctor, and the doctor took, had me take a, a Beck assessment. This is how they determine whether, one of the tools to determine whether someone is suffering with depression, and my numbers were way off the charts. And so I had to humble myself. I had to go in at, at, and, and talk to Nick and the exec team, uh, the staff exec team, Mike and Gene, and I had to say, uh, I'm struggling with depression. I need, a, I need some time off. And the doctors recommended it. They said, Lord, you should take a quarter off. You should, you know, you need to do some counseling. You might want to consider medication. And I was like, this was just too much for me. And to be honest with you, I was struggling with pride. I mean, I can understand having heart problems, I could understand other sicknesses and flus. I, I mean, I get that. But to suggest that I was dealing with some mental illness, it was really a difficult kind of challenge for me. But I went in and I, I talked to, the, to Nick and Mike, and they said, hey, Lloyd, we're with you and the elders. And I, I'm back kind of working part-time, but... Um, last month I was scheduled to preach. There's no way in the world. I was sleeping two or three hours a night. Even after I started taking a break, I couldn't sleep. So there's a, there was a poverty. God had me sit down, and I was talking to another man at the church. He wasn't going through depression, but another ailment that has him having to sit down for two or three months in recovery. And he's like, this is the most humbling thing in my life. This is the most humbling thing experience of my life to walk this through. But God is faithful. 
Maybe he's given this to me to remind me of how much I need him. Maybe um, he's going to show me how his resurrecting power can even deal with depression. Repent for the kingdom of God. My question to you is, do you need Jesus? Is there anything, any way in which you need God? And if you've been walking with Christ for a while, have have you let your heart grow cold to the point where you think you know it all and you stop learning and repenting when when God brings sin towards you and asks you to repent? So Jesus' mission mission requires him to confront your self-righteousness. The presence of the Holy Spirit demonstrates the importance of that confrontation And seeing your own neediness is the goal of that confrontation. I want you to get that. That's why he confronts us with our sin. He wants us to see our need for him. Last point. Now, your response to that confrontation determines your relationship with God. How you respond determines your relationship. Luke 4, 23, 23. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And so the convention was that the the preacher for the morning was to rise up, read the scripture, and sit down to preach. That's what's happening here. He's sitting down in the synagogue. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They were fastened on him because they knew the winsomeness of his word. They had heard rumors of the healings and the miracles that he was working. And just maybe, just maybe this might be the, the Lord's deliverer. Just maybe this might be the Messiah. They were fastened on him to see what he would say next. And sure enough, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Could you imagine being in this assembly, knowing Jesus, having grown up with him, this peasant whose dad is a carpenter, you know, he's a a, a normal person kind of like me, and what he's now revealing is that he is the Lord's promised eternal king. And people spoke well of him. They were amazed at how wise his words were and how gracious. But they said, isn't this Joseph's son? I know he's a local boy made good, but how in the world can he sit here and tell us that he's the Messiah? We know his daddy. We know his daddy. He's just like us. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your home time what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, they're saying, show us your credentials. You know, you a king? Then show us how grand you are. Do some miracles in our midst. Demonstrate that you are God. He said, Moses gave us manna in the desert, they tell them in Matthew chapter 4. Moses gave us manna in desert 6. What are you going to do for us, Jesus? And here's what Jesus says. I'm going to give you the word. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Uh, When when I started preaching, my mom introduced me once at a family reunion, and it was the best introduction. It was the most honest and most humbling introduction I ever received. She went up to the podium. My mom has got a fifth grade education. She went up to the podium and said, "Uh, the Lord must really be in this, right? Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's not the smartest of my sons. <laughs> 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 and, 
and he's always been scary. I don't know how he's going to make a feature, but here he is. <laughs> it's nothing like your mama to, to, to really tell you what you are. No prophet, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, even in his house that he grew up in. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, you remember this story in 1 Kings. Elijah's the prophet to Israel. The people have abandoned, they have the wicked king Ahab, just completely wicked. And he's turned the people's hearts away from God. For three and a half years, there's a famine. And God doesn't send Elijah to, to, to Israel. He sends them to a Gentile. Three and a half years, there was a severe famine for them. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He went and blessed this widow, even raised her son up from the dead a little bit later. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, next prophet. Yet none of them was, was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. What he's trying to tell them is that, listen, in your own history, Israel, when you have rejected your prophets, God has turned to, to the Gentiles, and he has blessed the Gentiles. Now, these people were hit with this. They were infuriated, infuriated by this. They were like, wait a minute, you got to be kidding me. We are God's people. We have the covenants. We have Moses. We've been waiting for his appearance. At least we try to worship God. How could it possibly be that God would turn away from us and, and bless these infidel, idolatrous Gentiles. Jesus went to his own, John 1, 11, and his own received him not. But thank God to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Thank God it wasn't just the children of Abraham that Jesus came to save. It was also the children of Adam. And that's good news for most of us in here because most of us don't have a Jewish heritage. Amen? And all Jesus requires is humility and a willingness to repent and come to him for salvation. He doesn't care about your birthright or your economics and your cultural background. He cares about you already made in his image. He's cared about you receiving him. But these people rejected him. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. How in the world is God going to accept the Romans or something and not us? They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And we don't know whether this was a, a miracle where Jesus disappeared and reappeared or was it like when he, he was being approached by the, 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 the detached that the chief priest had sent with Judas in order to arrest him. And you remember, Jesus came and they fell back. They said, who are you looking for? Jesus. And they fell back on the ground. We don't know how it happened, but we know it wasn't his time yet. There would be a time when he would die at the hands of sinners for our good, but this wasn't the time. And he walked right through. There are typical responses to when the gospel confronts us in our sin. I think there's about four. There might be more. These are the ones I thought about. The first is anger. This is when uh, Jesus confronts me with my sin, and I'm like, no, 
I'm not the sinner. This person is the greater sinner. And they want to persecute the message. The message. They won't receive the message, and they want to persecute the messenger. That's the first kind of response that we find. And, and my opinion is this response is found both in Christians and non-Christians. Even Christians can get angry when they are, when we get self-righteous and God confronts us with our sin. That's why we always need to have a humble, pliable heart. The second one is sadness. I want you to think about the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And he, Jesus runs through all the commandments. He says, I've done all these since my youth. And then, and then Jesus looks at him and he says, he looked at him and he loved him. And he said, one thing you lack, take all your stuff and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the scripture says he went away downcast. You know, why did he go away downcast? There was no way in the world he was going to give up on his real treasure to serve God. What is the thing God is asking you to give up so that you can grow in him? What, what are the things that God is asking you to give up? There's a sadness that happens, a, down, a, a, a downcastness, right? It's a sulking resignation. It's just it's too hard. I can't do it. It's just it's way too hard. Too much God is asking of me. And even worse is the indifference. I just don't care. I know I've got this sin. and I'm not giving it up. I really don't care. Right? And that, then you just continue in it. And the last one is a conviction, a sense that you know you're wrong. You know God is right and you want to change. Think of Peter in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching his first sermon. He tells them that they put the Messiah to death, and the people say, what must we do to be saved? That's conviction. And he tells them, you don't have to do much. You just have to repent. And times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Conviction and repentance. I want to talk a little bit about how you cultivate the kind of humble spirit that repents. And I'm speaking mostly to Christians. I'm speaking mostly to people like me who have a bent towards self-righteousness, have a bent towards feeling like you know it and heard it all before. I think there's a couple of things that we've got to pay attention to. Here's the first. We've got to stop just listening to sermons. And we got to expect to make some changes on a regular basis. Stop just having prayer meetings. Stop just reading your Bible. But expect that the Bible is going to change you. Expect that your practices are going to change because the Word of God. You understand it better, and now you can apply it rightly. Expect to change. Secondly, identify your problems. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you and the enemy Satan know your weaknesses. Now, I, I like talking to millennials because my experience has been that millennials have a better grasp of this than some, some of the older folks like me. I'm kind of a generation X. I'm right on the, the border of the baby boomers and X in my birth time. And I think the millennials are better at this, i.e., they identify where they've got a problem. They go and get a mentor. They go and get counseling. They tell their friends. They ask for accountability. In my generation, that wasn't cool. In my generation, you kind of had to be, you had to know it all. You don't let anybody know about your weaknesses, right? 
That's why it was so hard for me to come out and admit that I had depression. Because in my generation, that ain't cool. Identify your problems. Don't let yourself slide. Make a plan to put sin to death. So Jesus' mission requires him to confront your self-righteousness. Now this is really important, how we respond to Jesus, because it, de it determines our relationship with him. For a Christian, it determines whether you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit with how about you go about your life, or whether Jesus will be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful sinner. You knew your weak areas. You, you strove through the word of God, through fellowship, to grow in Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. What, what's Jesus' message going to be for us? Are we going to grieve the Holy Spirit, or is he going to be able to tell us even while we live? Well done. It, it depends on how we respond when Jesus confronts us with our sin. And it doesn't matter whether you are a non-Christian. Yes, Jesus is confronting you that you are a sinner. Come to him. But I think it's even more crucial for those of us who've been walking with him for a while to recognize that there's still time for us to grow. As long as you're here, then you need to be growing. And that requires you to repent and believe afresh. Your response to the competition determines your relationship to Jesus. This is the last one. I'll close with this. Nicodemus is a classic example. We hear about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He is a Pharisee and he is a wealthy man. He comes to Jesus at night. Maybe it's because he doesn't, he's prideful like me. He doesn't want his compadres to know that he is in need spiritually. He comes to Jesus and he says to him, he says, nobody could do the stuff that you're doing unless the God is with him. And he says, Jesus, he says, Jesus says to him, he cuts right to the chase. I love you. He cuts right to the chase. He says, you must be born again. If, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And, and he responds, he says, what are you talking about being born? How can I be born again if I'm old? And Jesus just blasts him. He convicts him. He says, are you a leader of Israel? And you don't know what is required to walk in unity with your God? Are you a leader of Israel? And then, of course, he goes on and explains to him that he needs to repent and, 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 and receive Christ as Savior and that God would give him, would make him new in the spirit. But at the end of that story in chapter 3, we don't know how Nicodemus responds. It's left kind of open until we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, the Pharisees are on Jesus' back. They're trying to arrest him. They want to put him to death because they can see that the people are coming towards him and not towards them. They're all about power, prestige, and money. And it's threatened, and they want to put him to death. And Nicodemus stands up. He says, does our law allow you to, us to put a person to death? And we don't even know what they're doing. And they blast him. His colleagues blast him. What he feared was what happened. He said, you look into it. Is there anybody in the scripture that comes out of Nazareth? They were like, there's no way this local bumpkin is the Messiah, right? They didn't understand that he was from God the Father through the Holy Spirit. They thought he was a local guy like me or something from the west side. No, this is God, amen? Then we catch him last at the end of the Gospels, and Jesus is put to death. And the scripture tells us that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come, 
and through their own resources, they provide a proper burial for him. So what is it going to be when you're confronted? Here, here this man, Nicodemus, he, he was the most prominent of men in his era. And when Jesus blasts him, he responds with humility and defends Jesus Christ. What about you? What, what are you going to do when Jesus confronts you with his sin? Are you going to repent and receive Christ and recognize that God accepts you on Jesus's righteousness and not your own and strive through his power to, to walk in obedience to him and gratitude? Or are you going to push him back? Let us pray. Lord, uh, in your words you say that you didn't come to make peace but to make war, war. You said that you came to turn a brother against his family. And wh what you're telling us is um, that there is an allegiance that is primary. And, uh, our allegiance to our God our maker is the most important thing. You're the one who has given us our life. You're the ones in, him, in who we move and in, in whom we have our being. And our relationship with you is paramount. Yet your mission causes you to confront us. And, and you tell us that we are poor and that we are blind and that we're deaf and that we're imprisoned by our sins. And Father, if we, don't, aren't, if we aren't able to hear you, if we aren't able to respond in conviction and repentance, we'll never be whom you plan for us to be. Your children. Your sons and daughters. Marked for eternal blessing. Marked for fruitfulness here on earth as we serve you in our various capacities and to be able to see you face to face in eternity. Help us, Lord, to have the right humility of heart that when you convict us of our self-righteousness, we will turn willingly towards you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.